Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brainaway Nerdy, and today I'm talking to Tom Holder, the senior editor at Del Rey who has helped put together so many of the incredible Star Wars stories from over the past decade. Tom is an incredible part of the legacy of Star Wars publication, and it was a true joy to get to talk to him. His story is full of determination and inspiration, and I hope you all enjoy it. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 140, Tom Holder. Before we really dive in, I'd love to just talk about your first experiences, especially like with the saga, with Star Wars. How did that even impact you growing up, if, if at all? Star Wars has been part of my life the whole time, such to the point that I can't tell anybody what my first experience with Star Wars is. So as far as I'm concerned, I was just sort of born already not knowing Star Wars. Like Star Wars already a part of me just like from birth. You know, I'm a child of the late 80s and then grew up mostly in the 90s. So I think my first like big experience probably was when the special editions were re-released into theaters in the mid-90s, because that certainly was the first time I saw Star Wars on a big screen, and I can recall that. Um, but I don't actually know the very first time anyone showed it to me. Oddly enough, no one in my family, because as you would imagine, I kind of get asked this question a lot. So I've like gone back and asked relatives, members of my family, like, hey, do you remember the very first time anybody showed me Star Wars or who did it? Nobody remembers. Uh, so, you know, that's how well. But it was this huge transformative thing because particularly at that time, it's just like, for me, it very much still is. But it's just like, at that time, it was like, the way that I talked about any other form of entertainment, and then the way that I talked about Star Wars, like Star Wars is over here. It's like everything else is in one place, and I talk about it. But then when I talk about Star Wars, it had just imprinted on me so completely that like I just talked about it in a way that I talked about nothing else, no other type of entertainment, no other type of storytelling, particularly in movie form at the time. And it really was like the driving force behind like the kind of early passion that I developed for science fiction, fantasy, genre storytelling, which didn't just persist in films, but heavily influenced all the books that I read and then eventually the job that I would come to have. I'd love to touch on that then, the non-Star Wars genre, especially books. Were there any that really still stick out to you or you still kind of either delve back into now or just really have a hold on you? I was like a really early reader of just like, if it had the logo of a movie or other thing that I liked, I read it kind of no matter what. So it's like Magic the Gathering novels from the early and mid-90s, like StarCraft, Warcraft, Diablo books from then, Star Wars books, like literally any brand, any movie, any video game, any TV show that I found that there was like a book or comic book about, I probably devoured in fr some way, shape, or form. And then like of course like extending it more broadly to like science fiction and fantasy you know it was like my life was like transformed the very first time that i like read the hobbit because i just like never read a book that while ostensibly being for younger readers just was written with that kind of voice it's not that that's the only voice book that's written like that it's just that was the first time i had come into something like that and i like felt in the same way that i felt this kind of imprinting that star wars did it's like tolkien's works had a similar effect and then from there, it was just like looking across the landscape of science fiction and fantasy and just wanting to read literally like an absolute zest and want to read anything, everything and anything. And I had this thing where I wanted to always read above, quote unquote, where I was supposed to be reading. So like when I was in elementary school and when I was in grade school and we'd get assigned different books, like a lot of them I, I liked and I enjoyed, but in school we'd have these moments on certain days where it'd be like, okay, this is like 30 minutes of just like reading time. And like you could bring books from home. They didn't, you know, it didn't really matter what it was. Like you always bring a book from home, but you had to be reading. And I would always just like grab a book that was way more advanced than books that I should be reading at the time. Like, they grabbed like a Tom Clancy novel when I was in like third grade or fourth grade. When I'm like 10 years old, I just like bring a Tom Clancy novel with me. Like I remember distinctly, I, I was in fifth grade and I started reading War and Peace. 
because I was just like, I wanted to, which is not necessarily like a genre book, but like, I just wanted to read. I wanted to try to push and read beyond what like I was quote unquote was supposed to be reading. Cause I was always curious about like, well, why am I not supposed to be reading this yet? I remember having that same thought and being like, what do adults read? You were just like, oh, do they read, they read John Grisham, I guess, where they read Tom Clancy or, or Robert Ludlum, right? I'm like, okay, I guess we'll, and then I think Crichton was the first one where I was like, okay, this is actually books that I like, you know, like I was like, oh, like Jurassic Park timeline. I was like, okay, now this, this is the kind of adult quote-unquote book exactly oh my god jurassic park that's such a great example because like the Crichton books particularly jurassic park and then the lost world were maybe the first time that i like in real time with like the the movie adaptations coming out was like really sort of squared in my head the idea of like wait a minute the book has scenes and information that the movie doesn't and like you know it's like in the book of the lost world there are like dinosaurs who like basically can camouflage themselves they like change their their, the the color of their skin to like match up with things and they're like i'm like why aren't these dinosaurs in the movies like maybe the first time i was ever mad that like quote unquote mad you know that the the movie didn't have something that the book did and yeah, absolutely. And it was entirely like that. It was that experience of like, well, what do adults read? And then just trying to figure it out by doing. And I was lucky that like between my parents and particularly like my my grandparents and and some older relatives, like they always all just had these random books around that I could just take. And I would just be like, Grandma, I'm gonna borrow this book. You know, I'm you know, walking out of his his uh his study with uh with war and peace or something. And he's just like, Okay, like, you know, whatever. Happy that I'm reading. Your experience and your journey to the job that you currently have is, let's say, a little different than other people who might have the same position you do or the same type of job that you're currently in. What was your first experiences in school and as you progressed through your first career that really led you to want to work in literature and work to become an editor? I think the first thing is that like, I've never at any point in my life fashioned myself as a writer or a storyteller, which some editors do and, and some folks do, but but I just never did. I was one, someone who school came pretty naturally and pretty easy to me. Um, I liked a lot of different classes. I'd always really been into math a lot. I loved history. I really liked English and reading. Like I liked a lot of things and it came pretty easy to me, but there was never any of this one thing that stood out to be like, ah, that's what I'm going to be when I grow up. And that kind of persisted for me through most of early school and into high school. So I decided ultimately to like attend business school and study to become an accountant because I took an accounting class in high school with a teacher that I really liked and sort of developed a connection with. And I did really well in that class and, and she sort of cultivated that interest. And so it was sort of just like, I'm good at this or I think I'm good at this. So like, I'll just do this. It's fine. Because again, there wasn't that like spark of I must be an editor. I must be, you know, a chemist. I must, I just didn't have that for whatever reason. But what ended up happening is as I started to study that and do it, it still came rather naturally to me. It was the kind of thing where like, I was like, oh, this is cool. It's kind of interesting. It's like fun puzzle solving with math and stuff. But it obviously wasn't something that I like loved. It wasn't like the center of my being as, you know, some people might say. Everything else though that I ended up doing starting in high school and into college was around storytelling. I was involved with school newspapers. I would be involved with like the literature clubs and the literature annuals. I would host shows on on college radio. I was the sports broadcaster. I would, you know, I'd do all these things. And all of this stuff was storytelling in some way, shape, or form. Some of it, all of it was supporting storytelling in some shape, particularly when I was like newspaper editor. And I started to develop this real affinity for not necessarily wanting to tell my own stories, but for wanting to find ways to help people tell their stories or find ways to augment the storytelling that other people were doing. And that is what planted like that initial seed in my head. And then eventually, once I graduated and started working as an accountant and really had this real early linchpin moment of like, this is definitely not what I'm doing for the rest of my life. And then the next thought was, so why am I going to do it for even the next, like, metaphorically five minutes? And if I'm not, then what do I want to do? That was my aha light bulb moment. You know, it happened like six years maybe later than most people would have wanted it to happen, but it finally did happen, right? You know, that's sort of the initial roadmap. Well, how do you go from that initial roadmap to getting involved with Delray, to working with Delray, to being an intern? What kind of led you down that road and how did you get first into the system? To go back to that aha moment, it was like, okay, so, okay, storytelling, books, but somebody makes books, somebody is an editor for books, somebody's got to do that, okay. And then it became, well, what books do I want to make? And I was, you know, just sitting around, I remember distinctly being like, okay, editor and books, but like, what books? And I went to a bookstore 
And I just walked around the bookstore and just went to all the sections and looked at books that I had read, books that I had been like meaning to read, types of books that I liked. And I just started looking at like all the spines of the books because on the spine of a book, the very bottom of any book that you pick up, if you're listening to this, go look at your bookshelf, grab literally any book, hardcover, softcover, nonfiction, fiction, and look at the very bottom of the spine below wherever the title is and the author's name. You'll probably see some sort of little picture, what we call a colophon, and probably a tiny little name. That is the identifying information that tells you the the word is imprint, but basically the publishing team, the, 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 the small publishing team or the company that made that book. And so obviously, if you go look at your shelf and they all have the same one on there, you're like, oh, I must really like books by this group, by this publisher. And it's really so. So I did that. And I found that so many of the books that I really loved were books were both A, they were Delray books, and B, a lot of them were Star Wars. And I was just like, okay, uh, this is super, just like, unbelievably presumptuous thing to think in your head at the time. It's just like, okay, I'll go do that. That then became my goal. Okay, that's what I want to do. Work at Delray, I'm going to make Star Wars books, among other things. And then from there, I just sort of broke down what did I think I needed to do in order to achieve that goal. And the first thing in my head was, well, nobody's going to hire an accountant to be their book editor. So the first thing I had to do was I had to go back to school. Because to me, it wasn't so much about a skill set. It was a much. It was as much about if I handed someone my resume, there's no way that my resume at the time would tell anybody that I was qualified to be a book editor. In fact, most people would think like, did you accidentally apply for the wrong job? Because all, all my resume said was accounting degrees, working at hedge funds, working in public. It's like all so it's just 100% finance and business. So I went back to school to get an, some more study, but also just get another degree that would allow me to like put the words writer like on my resume, put the words editing, put those kinds of terms on my resume. And from there, it just came about like trying to learn about who worked where. And it turns out that the program that I went to, I went to the school Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. The program that I went to, the rules of the program were it was a three semester program. And in the summer between your second semester and your third semester, you needed to have an internship of some kind. They put no restrictions on what the internship was. They were like, it needs to be an internship of some kind, but you're free to pick whatever you want. And so I was like, well, what if I could I could be Delray's intern? Why not? Right? I've been I've been, you know, ridiculously ambitious to this point. Like, why not just shoot for the moon here? This is at a time, I should say, this is like in like 2011, it's like 2010. This is at a time when like not a lot of people are doing a lot of robust hiring. The economy from like 2008 had been pretty bad. And so like a lot of internships in particular had been whittled down or eliminated because it was just a basic cost-cutting measure for a company. If we're not hiring a ton of people and we need to save money, well, let's not hire 10 interns this year because we're not going to have full-time jobs for them and just it's simple. There wasn't a formal program that I could apply to like there is nowadays. This is one of those moments when a lot of pushing after your dream career, whether it's publishing, whatever it is, there's a little bit of luck. You know, the, the force has to be involved in some way or another, right? And this is one of those moments. I just was Googling around, Googling around, and I knew that at the time, Shelley Shapiro was working at Delray as the editor who worked primarily on Star Wars. And I read a bunch of interviews with her. I would see her at conventions on, on convention panels, which is also, you know, name popular. And I found an interview that Shelley did with a Star Wars fan site. And the fan site's name and the, the actual case of the interview, it, it escapes me. I can't remember. I've never been able to find it again. So I don't, I don't maybe they, they don't exist. Anymore. They did an interview with Shelly and they did something that I've, I don't think I've ever seen. And I think you, you Brandon, probably would, would agree this is an unusual thing to do. At the very end of the interview, they listed Shelly's name and then they listed her email address, her work email. I have, again, I have no idea why this is, it's just not a thing, right? listed her contact information. And so now I had her email address. And people who are not very familiar with publishing should know that editors, we sort of guard our contact information pretty closely in publishing. Many other positions, many industries do that. But editors in book publishing do because we just cannot, could not deal with the, the amount of just like unsolicited like pitches and requests to read this and stuff that we would get if like my email address was just like posted on my Twitter profile. And so like people in publishing, particularly editors, tend to guard those. So the fact that I was able to find her email address again is this. And so I just cold emailed her one morning at like two o'clock in the morning. This is one of those things where you're up really late on like a Friday or Saturday. You're like, I got to get an internship. I got to get an internship. And it was like two in the morning and I had this email address. And instead of, you know, maybe waiting until a normal hour when I'd slept and was thinking a little more rationally, I just sent her a cold email. 
basically saying, I would love to be your intern if I could be in the summer. You know, I'm from the New York area. So it's like, I'm, I'm local to the area and I'm in this program. I need a summer internship. I really love the books that Dara is. I wrote this whole thing about like why I thought they were a great publisher, you know, just sort of pulling, just trying to make a really smart argument, you know, trying to sound really good, passed along my resume as just like, hey, so you don't have to ask for this later in case you might be interested. Thank you. And the next day, she, I, well, this might be apocryphal, but maybe not the next time. It was two days later. A couple days later, like very shortly later, I got an email back from her and she told me that she had passed my resume on to somebody else at the company. I ended up having a phone interview with someone from the HR department who was sort of like, you know, we don't really have an internship program, but Shelly passed anything. It's kind of interesting. And we talked a little bit and talked a little bit. I don't know that I've ever really told this part of the story. So I'm going to tell this part of the story. It's been long enough. I'm okay with it. I lied in order to get the internship. I had to lie. Well, I did not have to. Let me let me be clear. I did not have to in that moment as a you know a kid desperate to maybe get this internship and just, oh my gosh, the way this, this cold email worked. I decided to lie. I got asked, do you have a spring break coming up? And, and I did. They're like, well, if you have a spring break coming up, are you going to be home for spring break? Because Carnegie Mellon's in Pittsburgh, Delray's in New York. I lived in Connecticut, New York. That's where all my family is. So if you're going to be in New York, maybe you could come by the office and meet a couple people and we could have a little interview to see if maybe there's a thing. I was not actually planning to be in New York because I was a broke graduate student. I couldn't really afford to go home, but I didn't tell them that. I just said, yes, I will be home. I'm fairly certain if I had said, you know, I, you know, I can't for whatever reason, I'm fairly certain the answer would have been, okay, why don't we just set up another phone interview or something else? Like, I'm sure they would have accommodated it or figured something out. But I was just like, if I say the word no, yes. So I lied. I cobbled together the resources, borrowed it from a bunch of very lovely, wonderful relatives to fly home. And the morning of the interview, flew to New York on a plane. I got in a car, went to the offices, met everybody in the office, had this interview with a bunch of people that were asking me questions. I was like, I've read every book that's on that shelf and was like, offered to sit under someone's desk when they were like, you know, we'll have to find your desk. It's a little tight here. I offered to literally sit under someone's desk for the summer. I was like, there's room under there. I will sit there. Looking in hindsight, I was like, why did they give me the internship? I was ridiculous in that interview. And then I left that interview, got on the subway, went down to where there is a ferry in New York and took a ferry to see some relatives, then got back on in a car to the airport, back to Pittsburgh, got on a bus to get back to my apartment. I basically took every mode of transportation, save hovercraft, in the same day just to have this interview. But that led to me being a summer intern. Do you remember any of the projects you worked on or any of those first things that you did as Darth internist? I worked on a bunch of things that summer. I was an editorial intern, but I actually kind of did projects and work for every department. I did a bunch of stuff for marketing. I worked with the publicity folks. I did some stuff for the production team. Like I worked with every little department. But there are two projects over the course of that summer that still stand out to me this day, which is one, there was a poster that they designed for the Star Wars celebration that happened in the August of 2012. I believe it was an Orlando celebration, but you or someone else could correct me if I'm correct. I think it was Orlando. There was a big poster that they ended up giving away with one side of it had the cover of the Essential Readers Companion, um, that book that came out in 2012 that was written by Pablo Hidalgo and had a bunch of art from a bunch of amazing artists. One side was the cover of that, you know, Yoda on the stack of books, like kind of reading. The other side was this big timeline of all of the Star Wars novels to that point with all the book covers and sort of designate them by era, you know, between like Legacy, High Old Republic, all that stuff. So one of my projects for the summer is I designed the timeline part of that poster. Uh, so I sat down and like sketched out what it could be and then like used Photoshop and InDesign to like create rough versions of it and spent kind of a good chunk of the summer designing what this poster could be. And then the people with actual design and artistic talent, because I'm not one of those people, took that and turned it into the poster. So I was really proud of that. Um, also at this last celebration in Anaheim, somebody brought one of those posters by the booth and was getting different authors to sign it. It was the very first time I'd ever seen one in person because I did not go to that celebration. And it was the only celebration I believe, I believe that's the only time that poster was handed out. And so while I know what the poster looks like, I had never seen one in person. And it was really exciting to me. The, the, the individual was very kind to let me like look at it and hold it and kind of take a selfie with it. So that was cool. But the other thing that I got to work on is for the Essential Readers Companion is I got to help finalize a bunch of the art reference for that book. Um, if people are not familiar with this book, it is a book that through 2012 sort of was a compendium of every Star Wars novel, 
most short stories that had ever been published with an entry for each book, some sort of behind the scenes of like this, how this book came together, a synopsis of what happens, it's larger context within the saga. And then there were many, many pieces of art that were commissioned of both characters from books as well as scenes. And the fun thing that I got to do was I got to go through a lot of the books and pull out the reference so I could send that reference to an artist and say, oh, we need this scene of Darth Bane fighting, you know, having a duel with Zana or, or something like that. So I got to compile all this stuff, which was super fun. And in particular at that, there were a lot of characters or moments which had actually never been visually depicted until that book, which means I got to help provide the reference and provide some of the feedback to help finally define, like, what do these characters look like? And the reason it was so exciting is I can remember having been not a not a big active participant in Star Wars fandom at the time, like, but I was always like, like I had accounts at different forums. I wasn't very active on the forums, but I would go read them, you know. But I wasn't like, here's my big theory about what's going on in this book or movie. It just, I for whatever reason, I was like never comfortable contributing that stuff. I was always like, like to read the theories on things. So there were the, always these long threads about like, what do we think this character looks like, or what do we think this scene actually looked like because the books were too light on description, or maybe there wasn't like a, a comic component or a comic companion that might have visualized it or didn't appear in a video game. And so helping to get to define some of those scenes and some of those moments and help make decisions about like, oh, this person's armor should look more like this because this book makes mention of this. And so it would make sense that they were wearing like a pauldron like this or, or something like that. Those were the two big projects that I worked with, along with getting to provide some like editorial notes on a few books. But those two projects as an intern were like transformative for me because they were sort of proof positive to me that like not only did I really like this stuff, but oh my gosh, I really like actually making this stuff. And that was like, that was, that was it. That was when I knew like, I have to do this now. Not I think I want to do this. I have to do this. Going from intern to full time, was that immediate after, you know, your internship is over and you graduate? Do you go back to Delray full time or was... No, I do not. At the end of my internship, which lasted until August of 2012, it was just through the summer, obviously, I was going back to school. Um, at the end of the, the internship, I was going back to school for one more semester, and there was not a full-time position available for me. So after I graduated at the end of 2012, basically spent the next year and a half trying to break in full-time to publishing. And I did temp work, I did some freelance stuff, I and I just applied to jobs. And it was real, still really difficult for me to get a job in publishing. And so it was not until the summer of 2014 that a position opened up that was essentially, it was an assistant position. It was basically like my internship, but a full-time job. Um, and that is the job that I ended up getting. So I did not start full-time until September 2nd of 2014, which also happens to be the day that John Jackson Miller's A New Dawn was published. So like my work anniversary is a very important Star Wars literature anniversary. Um, so, so it was you know, nice serendipity that those two dates happened to work. But it was, a, it was a little bit of time. And so I bounced around. Like I said, I did some freelance work. I did some temp work. Uh, you know, I just kind of, I did some teaching, like I literally did whatever I could to pay the bills while also trying to break in full time to publishing. And then when you finally break in, when you finally get to work at Delray, what were those first projects how did you start cultivating yourself as an editor what qualities even make a good editor and are those qualities even different for a star wars editor if that makes sense so i think the the qualities to me that make a good editor and I, this is i learned from the editors that i learned with like i worked with shelly for a long time and i've had the privilege of working with some unbelievably wonderful editors over the years. And editing is very much a kind of apprenticeship sort of model for career growth. So you start as an assistant to one or more editors, and then over time you will start to become your own editor. And in being an assistant to those folks, you learn based on the kinds of editorial, how they edit, and then you take a little of what they do and you use your own ideas and eventually you become, you know, you're gonna become. But what quality they're good. So first and foremost is um, editing to me is as much about the relationship that you have with a writer and your ability to communicate with them as it is your ability to contribute to storytelling. So to me, what makes a really good editor is someone who is like a supreme communicator. And when I mean supreme communicator, I mean someone who can communicate really complex ideas in a really clear and succinct way. A lot of folks are really great at talking about emotionally 
how they either connect or do not connect with a book. How did a book make you feel emotionally? What was your emotional reaction to the book? I really like this. I didn't like this. This made me upset. This made me happy. This made me scared. This made me laugh. All those things. But oftentimes, a lot of people, when reading books, the part that becomes much more challenging, but the part that is absolutely intrinsic to being a book editor, is you need to be able to distill and unpack those emotional reactions or those very broad reactions into like, the mechanics of what a story is doing or is not doing, down to the word or down to the sentence that underpins, why did this scene confuse me? Why did this scene make me laugh? Why did this part of the book leave me feeling great? Why did this part of the book feel slow or boring or whatever, you know, insert. A really good editor is someone who can take all of that and unpack it in a really clear and succinct way to say to an author, this part of the book is working because of X, this part of the book is not working because of why, and then to provide guidance and pathways on how you might address those things. But beyond that, a really good editor, in addition to having those communication skills, is also really in tune with ultimately whatever goal an author has for the vision for the book. And thus, every bit of feedback and communication that you provide is solely focused on trying to help the author achieve that vision and that goal and basically make their version of the book the best possible version of itself. It's very easy. It would be very easy as an editor. And it's something that certainly I am always trying to work on. It's very easy to take someone else's work and suddenly be like, well, if we change this, 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 and this, it'll be a better version. But then suddenly it's not their work anymore. You're like kind of creating your own book or your own story from theirs. And it's a real challenge as an editor to make changes and ideally improvements to a book that preserve the voice of the author such that when a reader comes to read it, it reads and feels like every single word and every single choice and every single moment in the book came from a singular voice and a singular person, that being the author. Now you ask me what, if anything, makes a good Star Wars editor, which is different from maybe a good editor. It's more like in addition to. It's not necessarily different. All those same things apply. But the two qualities I think that make a good Star Wars editor are one, understanding what makes something quote unquote sound like Star Wars, which is a very squishy thing, right? It's a that's a very like moving target. There's no like these are the five things that make something Star Wars and all the other things are not. But sort of understanding like there are very specific ways that say if you're writing about the force, there are very specific like individual words that we sometimes use or or do not use to describe the force. And it's a good Star Wars editor sort of understands all of those different things and can provide them to an author to say, okay, I see your goal is to write a story about this, these aspects of Star Wars. Well, here are the tools that we use to do that. By the way, here are the tools that we don't use to do that. And with ever your, your final vision is for a story, here's how we navigate around those tools or use those tools to our advantage. And it's about helping to put an author in the best position like within Star Wars to tell their version of a Star Wars story. And then the second part is because a big part of my job is to take the core idea of what will become a Star Wars story and find an author to marry and match with that core idea, it's to be able to look at someone's writing, their non-Star Wars writing, to look at whatever else they've written, other comics, original novels, writing for other entertainment brands that aren't Star Wars, whatever it is, and being able to distill and figure out how their voice and their writing style might map to a Star Wars story and how it might combine with certain characters who, as you know, like characters in Star Wars, many of them are just like intractable. That's, that's not to say that you can't be creative with them, but it's just like if you push Han Solo or Princess Leia's dialogue too far in one direction, they suddenly don't sound like Han Solo and Princess Leia anymore, right? Or they, it's like, this is not the way that Han Solo would talk about this kind of thing, or this is not the way that Princess Leia would react to a kind of thing. And so finding the ways that you bring a unique author voice into a structure which allow that voice to flourish, which is how you get the best Star Wars stories, that's the other thing that makes a good Star Wars. And it takes a lot, and it takes a lot of just doing like you know you just have to do it a bunch it's an imperfect thing like it's something i'm still thinking about constantly it's something i'm still trying to get better at all the time i think it's very interesting if you even track that that 2014 to 2022 time period for star wars books and for what del rey and then also just the surrounding properties have been putting out for star wars and has had some of the highest quality storytelling not to, to your not to you know 
but it has had some very unique and very challenging things as well. And projects like the audio dramas or the publishing initiatives, or even like from a certain point of view, all of which I'm sure has brought like individual, maybe unique editing challenges. And maybe I'd like to dive in a little bit with you, how you approach those, if they're any different than you approach just a standalone Star Wars novel on their own. All of them are just like such different experiences that require not only oftentimes the authors to sort of take a different approach to writing, but like literally as an editor, I actually have to like learn new things and change the way that I edit. The first thing about all those things that you mentioned is like one of the things that our team really loves, and we we are always talking about this when we're talking to our friends at Lucasfilm or other publishers and stuff, is just like, we love to try new things. And we don't care how hard something sounds. We, we love the idea of trying new things. And like, just because something's going to be hard, that's not a reason to say no to it. Because that's how you get cool new ideas and cool new stories and how you discover things that if you just were doing the same thing all the time, you'd never discover. Sometimes it's about the actual mechanics of building a story. So in a good good example of that is the audio dramas that you talk about things like Tempest Runner, Dr. Aphra, you know, obviously um, Battle of Jedi will be coming up in a little while, uh, Dooku Jedi Lost. Like the challenge there is we are always working with our, our audio team because they obviously are creating audiobook versions of all of our novels. But in those cases, what they're doing is they take the same manuscript that we turn into the physical book or the ebook and simply have someone do a recording. And then obviously they add all sorts of amazing effects and sounds and music and, you know, essentially create, you know, like a, an auditory movie with a cinematic experience with them. The actual story itself, the manuscript is exactly the same as the one that we publish more or less. Every once in a while, there'll be like one line or something we tweak for, for various reasons. But with a audio drama, first of all, we're not writing a full-on manuscript. We are writing a script in the same way that you would write a script as if you were making a TV show or a movie. So all of those stories that I mentioned exist only as scripts. There is not like a novel of Dooku Jedi Lost, and then we have someone go in and be like, okay, now turn this into a script. We just, Kevin Scott just writes a script. And a script, being very different than a novel, has kind of only two parts to it. It has dialogue and it has like atmospheric direction slash sound effects or effects. And that changes the way that you need to approach blocking a scene, executing types of scenes, the way that books are paced or the way they flow, the length of scenes. There's a couple of very hard sort of rules that we learn. Like for instance, in a novel, if you're reading a novel, it's probably not a great idea to do this, but you could do it. Every single scene and every single chapter, you can jump around in time. You can be like, chapter one is set here, and then chapter two is set five years before, and chapter three is set 20 years after that, but also 30 years before, because we're swapping scenes and swapping POVs. You can get very complex with your scenes and POVs. It's actually a lot harder to do that in audio. Jumping around temporally in only audio when there is no text in front of you is a little bit challenging because it's a little harder for someone who's only listening to a story to track all of those time jumps. Even if you're just like, well, this one character only exists in the past and this one only in the future and this one only in the present, so you have three distinct voices. It's a challenging thing, so we try to be way more intentional about having time jumps. We will only usually have a couple, for example, or we'll try to space them out. Along with that, for example, in audio, it's a little more challenging to like have a character show up in chapter one and then that character doesn't show up again till like chapter 30 because it's again you're mostly tracking that character by their voice so blocking and stuff like that is challenging the other thing that audio influences is like it influences the way that you describe a scene imagine let's imagine like we have someone who's fighting with a lightsaber okay if i swing a lightsaber and i hit a droid versus i hit a door versus i block a blaster bolt versus i cut a tank in half those things like all sort of sound the same they not quite but like they all kind of do so how in audio just with fx with like sound effects how do i show maybe all of those things happening in the same short battle scene right it'd be a little challenging so we think a lot about the blocking and we think about how to use dialogue to key people in 
to something happening. Instead of a ship just crashing, you might have someone call out like, oh my gosh, look up there, an X-Wing, it's about to crash. So the reader knows, okay, this is an X-Wing. Then comes the sound effect. And in your mind, you've created the picture of an X-Wing crashing and maybe people are diving out of the way. But in a novel, you wouldn't have to have that line of dialogue. You could just describe the X-Wing, you know, careening towards the surface and, you know, whomever's in the X-Wing trying to desperately eject. So audio is very much a mechanical thing. And the great thing is that we work with such amazing audio folks that like when I get when we get our audio scripts in and we're starting to look at them from an editorial perspective of character and pacing and story, we are also having our audio folks sit with us and talk through and be like, hey, these two scenes are great. This scene right here, it's so, this is amazing action, but this FX isn't quite going to work. And we start to talk through and figure out, okay, what do we have to add or what do we need to tweak to bring that clarity? And it's cool to have that support. And that's something that I've spent a lot of time trying to learn. But with other projects, you mentioned from a certain point of view and like the initiatives like High Republic, those are just like, it's the same process that we always use for, let's say, a standalone book, but more. So from a certain point of view is an anthology of 40 stories. So it's like the editing process, but instead of just doing it once with one author, you have to do it 40 times with 40 different authors, by the way, all simultaneously. And then for the High Republic, it's not just like one person writing one story or even one person writing multiple books, but it's all one POV and one narrative, you know, one author, like a, you know, Alex Freed doing Alphabet Squadron or Tim Zahn doing a Throne trilogy. It's like every choice that an author makes or every tweak that you make or every every adjustment that you make to a story has ripple effects that will affect this book, the book that comes after it, perhaps the comic that's also happening, the concurrent other book. And it is about shaping your your stories in such a way that they have to be grander than just one medium or just one story. And then basically, instead of getting one author or one person moving in one direction at once, you're kind of getting a group of people all walking together, you know, hold hands and all walk in step, you know, like you're walking down an aisle or that you're or, or whatever, walking in a formation. And so it's the same thing, but just more. You know, we talked about editors have to be supreme communicators. Well, there's more people to communicate with. So you have to just be even more so. But those are just so much fun and those two story structures just allow you to do something that you just couldn't do with only one author, right? Or with only one story. And so they're tremendously fulfilling and tremendously enriching. Some of the fun, Brandon, is the challenge, right? To just be like, wait, we're going to do a book that has 40 Star Wars stories in it in one book? Like, can we actually do that? I don't know, but it's going to be a lot of fun to find out, right? And then can we do that again, but not do the same thing we did last time? I don't know, but it'd be fun to find out, right? And I think that's the way that we try to approach all of it because that's what keeps those projects exciting. And ideally, that excitement then kind of gets transposed into the final project itself and then people who are reading it or listening to it at the end feel that sort of same excitement. The most recent three Del Rey novels, The Princess and Scoundrel, Brotherhood, and, uh, and Shadow of the Sith are like the three strongest Star Wars books in concurrently like maybe ever I, I really cannot gush enough about how great they are and it really is testament to you and that whole team really all gas no breaks all moving uh, in the same pattern and it really is masterful to watch well, that's very nice of you to say sometimes i feel like there actually are no breaks it's only all gas. <laughs> I, i'm glad that you brought those three books up because i think that they they illustrate something that i've always held dear since i started doing this job and is like one of my guiding lights in terms of sitting on the team and talking about, well, what's our next project going to be or what projects we're going to do or what are we trying to achieve, which is I just never want us to publish the same book twice, right? It's like, I never want to publish the same book twice. Even if it's like, well, this is the next, like we have done, we've already done like a book about pilots. We're now doing another book about pilots or we've done a book with this main character. We've done three or four books with this main character. Here's another one. I never want to publish the exact same book twice because to me that is both boring and B, I don't think that that's doing right by the readership to just be like, I know you like that other one, so here's the exact same thing again. It should be like, it's cool you like that other one. Here's some of the things you like from that other one, but also some new stuff that maybe you didn't even know you wanted. And ideally, then they're going to like this. So, and those three books I think represent a really clear example of like, those three books are all so individual and unique to each other, but they all sort of, they, they fit of a piece. And we talk about them as a piece, as a sort of trinity, even though they're not a trilogy and you know not developed in that way. Do you have any projects or books that stand out to you now looking back at all of this that really like you're proud of the work you did or at least proud of maybe your communication or what you were able to, to bring to the table? Is that asking you to like pick a favorite child or, or pet, you know, or is yes. it... Uh, 
Yes, it is. It is exactly that. And in fact, that was exactly the analogy I was about to use is like, that's like asking me to pick a favorite child. But so if I, if I preface this by saying like, I am really proud of every book that I have gotten to contribute to and continue to get contribute to um, in no small talk, because I'm just like, it's still flabbergasting to me that I get to do this, uh, that I am allowed to do this. Uh, and especially knowing how many other people like would love to do this and could do this and are very you know qualified to do this. So prefacing all of that, there's a couple of things that stand out. First of all, I am just ridiculously proud of the from a certain point of view thing, because again, it was as we have talked about it publicly, but we also refer to it in-house as the best bad idea we've ever had because it started as, okay, the 40th anniversary of Star Wars is coming. And as you remember, 2017 was huge, you know, big deal, obviously all sorts of stuff. We got to do something for it. What can we do? Okay, let's do something around the original film. Could we do a cool retelling of some kind? Do we get somebody to like basically redo the novel, redo a novelization-like thing, but let's take a wildly different perspective kind of thing and that morphed into, well, what if we do just the side characters? Because there's all these ridiculous side characters. Great. Well, why does it have to be just be one person? What, what if it's two people or three people or four people? What if someone's and then someone goes, well, it's 40 years. What if it was 40? And everyone looks at each other and laughs and be like, haha, very funny. That's a bad idea. And then we're like, but what if? And of course, that's what we end up. The thing that makes me really proud about that is to me, that book gets to the heart of one of my favorite experiences about Star Wars, which is when you sit around with people to watch a Star Wars movie, and this happens whether all of the people or some of the people or, or just one of the people in that group has never seen Star Wars before, or if everybody's watching it for like the umpteenth million times, which is you all be sitting around, you all get engaged in the movies, but invariably, invariably, it doesn't matter too which Star Wars movie or show or anything we watch, invariably somebody on the couch, somebody in the room's going to be like, hey, what's going on with that? With that person in the background over there why is that person wearing han solo's pants what what's going on with that creature like why why are they dressed like that why do they look like that what is that guy carrying is that an ice cream machine what is going on and then what will end up happening in the room as you're all enjoying the film is people will start to make jokes people start will start to just like make funny little one-off stories about like what's going on and it was really fun to i think take that kind of energy and that sort of feeling and experience that watching Star Wars gives you and to distill it into book form with the from a certain point of view stories. So I'm really proud of that. This is a very personal, proud thing, which is like, I get to help Timothy Zahn make Star Wars stories. And like, I grew up reading Timothy Zahn Star Wars stories. And now I get to sit there and give him feedback and have conversations with him about making books and stories and contribute to that, which is just like, it almost breaks my brain to like think about that circular sort of full circle thing. Like it's ridiculous. Like Tim is, is such a prolific, like Tim is a super prolific author, like winning awards literally before I was born. And yes, I've joked, I've joked with him about that once or twice, but like literally before I was born and now I get to help do that. So that I'm proud of. I'm like proud of so many of them. One of the reasons too why this is so hard, to, a question like this is hard to answer for me and I think for a lot of the other editors and folks that I work with is like, when someone asks me that question, I'm not just thinking about like, oh, I'm really happy with like how this story came out. I think we really like nailed whatever emotional beats we're trying to hit or oh my God, the writing of that character is so good. Is I'm thinking about each individual author that I worked with and thinking about the conversations we had before the project about like, this is what I really want to achieve or oh my God, I'm so worried about not messing this thing up. And then the way that those conversations evolved and the like jokes and the feedback. And then by the time we get to the final book and the, the way that those authors all felt about their accomplishments. So I'm I'm just like really excited and really proud of a lot of the things. I think that I'll pick two more just to pick them. I will just never, ever, ever, ever get tired of talking to people about the work that Emma Mieko Candon did on her novel Star Wars, um, uh, Star Wars, her, you know, on her Ronin novel for Star Wars Visions from the book that is connected to and expands on the duel. I just like was so blown away by her initial idea their initial idea that came in and the kind of world that they were building from 11 minutes of animation which is a credit to to the animation and the team that made that visions episode that they they it diffused such a fully realized world into those 11 or 12 minutes that emma was able to be like 
I understand, you know, I have an absolute understanding of how this world might work and then to build that out and to be able to like give someone, give people a story that to me very much feels like we were talking earlier, like it feels like Star Wars. It is quite literally unlike any Star Wars story that anyone has ever put on paper before. And God, that was scary. You know, it's just like, it's scary to think about that, to be like, man, I hope people like this as much as we like this. I think it is probably the best Star Wars book I've read. And, oh, man, you know, that, I mean, it is, it is that's, truly that's, incredible, truly, okay. truly incredible. That one's really cool. And then I, this is a little selfish to me as well, where I'm really proud of the work that, that Rebecca Roanhorse did on Resistance Reborn, because we look at a lot of the books that we publish. And I think we're always thinking about like, you know, every book might actually be someone's first Star Wars book. As much as some books might serve best as like a quote unquote on ramp Star Wars book or serve better than others, you know, obviously, of course, like if someone just like picks up Alphabet Squadron, Shadowfall, like book two in a trilogy, that's maybe not your first. But some books work really easy as a quote unquote on, on ramp to Star Wars. Some of them are a little more steeped in like you, you know, the, the experience will probably be more fulfilling or better if you have not only watched a bunch of Star Wars, but maybe read something else before. And it is fun every once in a while to do a book that I think really rewards folks who have read a lot of Star Wars. And Resistance Reborn in bringing together people from a bunch of different books, from comics, from other things, felt to me like this fun, joyful moment to take a moment to sit around and celebrate. Like, look at all these amazing comic stories. Look at all these amazing TV shows and movies and books that have come out in the last five or six years. And let's just pull a bunch of characters together and tell a fun story with them. And to do it in a way that didn't just feel like we were pulling like all the same, all the different action figures into one toy box, but do it in a way that still felt like a real story. But also also felt like we were, you know, rewarding people for being like, you read all these different stories and now you get to see these characters who maybe you would have loved to be like, oh my God, I'd love if this person from the Black Squadron met this character from Inferno Squad and oh my God, they are. And so it was super cool that we got to do that and that we get to do that from time to time. Yeah, that's a hard question. I'm here just to only ask real tough questions. Uh, <laughs> good, good answers. A lot of people, like you mentioned a little bit earlier, really do want to work in publishing. And maybe they don't like know what that means exactly, or they don't know exactly what they would do within publishing. But do you have advice for people that are hoping to work in editorial or professional publishing or or writing in, in general? Like, what, what do you see in your day-to-day -day that are either easy things to kind of work towards or are hard things to work towards? It is a couple things. One, ultimately, people who come to work in publishing and come to work in editorial usually will end up focusing on something. So it might be science fiction fantasy. It might be, you know, another very specific genre. It might be a certain type of other book, whatever. But the one thing that I always tell people who are interested in publishing is absolutely read those things and read that and try to learn not just what, what books made that thing, that genre like classic, what books are super famous, but also read like what's new. Like, don't just read, here are the, the 10 luminary books of science fiction fantasy. Also read, like, here are the things that have really pushed science fiction fantasy forward in the last five to 10 years. And try to keep yourself as current as you can about emerging voices and things. But don't just read that. Read everything. Read broadly. Read anything you can get your hands on. Read other genres. Read outside your scope. Because if you want to get better about understanding storytelling, being able to identify different types of storytelling tropes or skills or voices, the broader you read, the more knowledge you'll be able to develop from taking in those varied experiences, those varied storytelling tropes, those varied storytelling traditions, those varied voices of authors. So read everything you can. Don't just read the thing you're interested in. I promise you those other things will serve you. The other thing, particularly if it's just like someone who's interested in publishing, is editorial is, I think, the thing that everybody knows. Everybody, like if you ask anybody on the street, how do books get made? The one thing they probably know other than like, well, somebody prints those things and somebody writes those things is that they probably like, yeah, there's editors, right? But I think something that people who are interested in publishing can and should do is try to broaden your knowledge about the other types of careers in publishing. I once wrote this down and I'm not going to list them all, but I once wrote this down ahead of talking to actually some college kids who were kind of asking the same question. And I came up with like 15 different careers that are involved in the path to go from an author has written a book and it's sitting on their computer as a Microsoft Word document to Brandon goes to the bookstore and picks the book up off the shelf and buys it and reads it. And between those two moments, I, I, I cataloged like 15 different careers that are involved. And so there are so many different ways to be involved in publishing that's not just editorial. Editorial is wonderful. I love editorial. It is my dream job. It is my dream career. And I, I love it. But 
it's not the only one. And there are a million other careers and disciplines and types of skill sets that publishing needs that people might not realize are open to them and available and that you may have, and you may not only have the skills for it, but you may have a real passion for. So I always tell people to like, try to learn more than just what editorial is. And then the last piece is kind of goes back to something I was talking about earlier is that working in editorial and working on books is not just about sitting in a big comfy chair every day, reading all day with a warm mug of tea or something next to you and maybe a cat or a dog curled at your, at your feet. That's not what editors do. That's not only what editors do. Gosh, I wish that was only what I did. That would be wonderful. Being an editor is very much about a good communicator, and it's about being good at developing and cultivating relationships with other people because the amount of time and the closeness with which you work with authors and other people in publishing. Working on being a really good communicator and working on being someone who can be really empathetic and develop good relationships with people, to be honest, might be as strong qualities and skill sets as it is your ability to identify why the pacing in a story is off or how to strengthen a character arc. Like That's obviously important, but those other skills are just as important. I call them all the time. You know, I, I know as much about many of the authors that I work with as I do some of my relatives and my closest friends because I just spend so much time with them. And the best books and the best projects come from when the relationship between an editor and an author is not necessarily that close on a personal level, but sort of that close on a professional level and that there's like just such an open kind of discourse between them. And that takes a lot of practice to cultivate, but it comes from whatever your basic skills as a communicator and your broader skills as a communicator are. That kind of stuff is so valuable. But if you go look on the rubrics of classes about publishing or classes about like being a good editor, I don't think a lot of those skill sets show up necessarily. Or they, if they do, they kind of show up after like, do you know grammar? Do you know style? You know, do you know those things? Which are, again, super important or else the stories we would tell wouldn't be very interesting. But I think that other stuff is something not to discount. Now, and the last thing is like, I was an accountant and now I'm a book editor. So like they let me do it, which means that like no matter what background you may be coming from, like you could do this. Like you absolutely can. Like I'm literally, I'm a tax accountant and I edit books. Like it's ridiculous, right? Um, and I still think about that all the time. Like I cannot imagine, you know, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine, what is it? It's been eight years. I couldn't imagine like 10 years ago that this would actually work. <laughs> um, and it did. If you're thinking about it, but you're, you're worried that you maybe don't have the most classic like English degree, art and literature degree or, or whatever, that's okay. You can make it. You, you absolutely can. Thank you for your time and, and all these credible answers and words. Thank you so much again to Tom for coming on the show and being so forthcoming and great with all of his answers. Thank you as well to Lauren at Delray for helping to coordinate this. We have some really cool episodes coming up very soon, and if you're enjoying the show, please head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these episodes and leave us a five-star rating and review. It means the world. That's all for now. Until next episode, stay tuned, leave that five-star review, and may the Force be with you.